Hello and welcome to the Little Minds Big Ideas podcast with the Early Years Network, the podcast where we talk all things early years from inside and outside our wonderful industry. And today I am joined by Ben Kingston Hughes. He is the Managing Director of Inspired Children, um, an author and an award-winning trainer who is continuing to inspire the early years sector with all the fantastic work that he does. So first of all, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. No, no, thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, I guess to start with, is it all right if we talk a little bit about your sort of entry into early years? How did you find yourself in this sector? Um, yeah, you can. It's it's not the standard introduction to the sector, though. Um, I was, um, well, I was sacked from multiple jobs originally. Um, I was a baker. I got sacked as a baker. I was a chef. I got sacked as a chef. Um, I, I now know I have ADHD and uh, looking back, it was my inability to focus. And I'll never forget working in the bakery and the mixing bowl would be whizzing so much that I would phase out and I just was hypnotized by it. And the head baker would slap me on the back of the head and just go, get on with your work, Windy Miller. So um, I was really making a hash of my life um, all the way through my childhood. And people with ADHD might, might uh, recognize this. But you're told you're bright, you're told you've got potential and you're told you should be achieving stuff, but you're not. So therefore it must be because you're lazy. And so oh, I was a disappointment to my parents. I, I went to university. I got kicked out of university. So I did my first degree. Um, and I was uh, and midway through the second year, I actually got kicked out because I just wasn't doing the work. I wasn't focused. I wasn't, yeah. So um, I moved out and I couldn't make rent. So this job came up and uh, it was six weeks working on an inner city project, working with vulnerable children. And um, I was thinking to myself, well, how hard can it be? You know, it's working with children kids, yeah. and it turns out it's the hardest job I've ever done um, but I went for six weeks and then 13 years later I was deputy manager of the place um, and I just stayed and they'd got an early years department so in order to make up enough money to live on so I worked in the after school bit I worked in the youth centre as well it was all in the same setting and then in the mornings there was an early years bit so for the mornings I'd get a little break in the afternoon but yeah I'd work with the youngest children and um, I ended up with really a solid grounding working with every age of children um, and it was, yeah, it changed my life. So up until that point, I, I kept getting sacked because I wasn't working hard because I couldn't focus. Whereas with children, there's always something new, isn't there? There's always some interesting, fantastic thing. They always do something amazing. Um, and I remember my first week in the early years, but just, just having a, a cow puppet and it was Boris the cow, no relation. And uh, just the joy. I mean, even then, yeah, I didn't know anything about working with children. I've not had, I've not done any qualifications. I was brought brought in with no experience, no qualifications, uh, which you know doesn't happen now. But the joy on those children's faces when Boris the cow was going on about how much he loves grass and it was really simple stuff. And since then, I, I've done it all my life. So um, yeah, I still work with children to this day. And um, yeah, if I'd not found that, I don't know if I'd even be here now. I mean, I was making such a failure of my life and like now in hindsight, the ADHD might well have been a factor. I might well have been lazy as well. I was young, but now, you know, I've got a job I can do. So, and it is literally the only thing I'm good at. So you ask anybody who knows me, <laughs> like gardening, oh my goodness, I'm terrible. I garden's a state, can't do DIY. I can't do anything else. Yeah, you know, ask my wife. I'm absolutely terrible at everything, but I'm I'm good at working with children. So, uh, so I would yeah. say that I think if I was to ever come out of this industry, I don't know what I'd do next. I was like, oh, I just love what I'm doing. So I don't know if I'd, yeah. It's not something I'd ever want to come out of either, if I'm honest. No, I mean, I'm now my job's taken me more to the strategic side of it and more the working with adults side of it. 
but I'm never going to stop the working with children bit entirely. So I have moved myself a bit away from that to do some of our, you know, the keynote speeches and the, you know, the training that I do. But no, always, always working with children. And, and to be honest, that's the bit that it feeds straight into it because the training that I deliver, I'll, the examples I use have literally happened last week. You know, it's stuff I've actually seen. And even when, <laughs> even when I don't want to go to a session, I did a session um, last week in Cardiff. Uh, I'm Midlands-based, so it's a three-hour journey. Uh, miserable. I don't want to go. It's a Saturday as well. Moaning away. It's raining as well. It's a horrible day. My son's coming with me. He's I started volunteering with the sessions. And I'm just a grumpy old man all the way. And we got there, and it was just amazing. It was a, an adoption activity day, which are a way of finding forever families for children who have been passed over for adoption. And we've been doing them for 10 years now. They're amazing. And they, they've created more forever families than any other project that's ever been tried. And just we just saw like adopters and children just bonding. Oh, and so lovely. Just playing together. And at the end of it, we've got they've got giant Lego, which I've never been able to afford with my projects because it's I think about 800 quid for a huge, like the really big, like big blocks like this. But they've got a set there and we got loads of scooter boards. So we built a giant car out of the Lego, put it on the scooter boards, and we pushed children around. Oh, this giant amazing. Car. And my son, he's, he's done a few now, so he, but he's only 15, but he's pushing these children around. They are having the best time ever. And this is children, some of whom have had pretty much everything taken away from them in their lives. And there they are in a giant car made of giant Lego, just having the best time ever. And you can't argue with experiences like that, can you? So, no. No, I'm never going to stop doing it. But No, definitely. Yeah. So... Talking of inspired children, what was it your sort of experience in that first setting that inspired you to create this business? Yeah, although again, it was another accidental one. I was um, eventually after working uh, at that inner city project for many, many years, I came into contact with a national charity and they invited me to um, um, interview for a job working at strategic level. And what I didn't know at the time was that they'd got um, a team already in place who were fed up of traveling and they wanted somebody who didn't mind driving around the whole country to do all these bits of strategic work and supporting lots of projects. And I'd got no children uh, of my own. So I thought, yeah, fine. I don't mind driving. And uh, it pretty much the, the, the week, first week of the job, my wife announced she was, she was pregnant. Uh, so, so yeah, so I worked for a national charity working with local authorities to develop play strategies, um, helping design playgrounds, but also actually delivery of projects like Play Ranger projects, um, earlier settings that were struggling, we would go in, we would support them to get through offset, et cetera. Um, so it was a really varied job and it, it gave me almost the, the ability to, to make my own job up, you know, to create the bits I wanted to do. And then of course, uh, change of government funding dried up for almost all of the projects uh, that, you know, the government pretty much ripped the heart out. A lot of these projects, projects that were the most incredible for job, but now just don't exist. Uh, so I was made redundant and, um, the whole team was, was taken out. And I, I, two choices really it was to try and find something else to do, which remember, I'm not very good at anything else or set up by myself. Um, so I did. So I set up the company, didn't, it was the worst time to do it. It was the beginning of the first recession. Um, and it was, you know, everyone was saying, don't set up a business, don't set up a business, but it's all I could do. So, um, I did children's sessions and training and it soon became clear that children's sessions don't pay the bills, um, or my mortgage. So, but the training was able to subsidize the children's sessions and it's a really nice model and that's how Inspired Children happened. He originally called it Inspired Training and Children's Services Solutions. That was my first really catchy name. That's a mouthful, isn't it? <laughs> and so the first two years, that's what we traded under and people just kept calling it Inspired Children and it's like, oh yeah, okay, 
should have caught that. that. Yeah. So yeah, so it became Inspired Children. And then a few years ago, we were incorporated as a limited company. Um, and it is, it's just those two things. We do work with any child, any age, any vulnerability. Uh, it doesn't have to be a vulnerable child, by the way. We'll, we'll work with any children, but it just seems to be that's where the direction of the business has gone. Um, and then we do training, keynote speeches and podcasts and stuff like this um, as the other side of it. So I've picked the best bits about the job for the charity, the best bits about the job from the agency I used to work for. And, and now I just do them. That's, no, that's amazing. It's, it's tailoring a career you love to the, what you enjoy doing. And it's like you said, you'd never step away from working with the children because that's the, that's the enjoyment. That's the, the yeah. what you do. So yeah, that's the, bit, it. that's the bit I love doing. But it's also, it feeds in so nicely. So stuff I learn on the training, I can apply with the children. So I'll, I'll learn something new and go, oh my goodness, like <laughs> I learned recently some of the incredible benefits of music and singing and realized I don't sing enough in front of children. Yeah. So I now sing more with children. They don't like it, but I sing more with children. And some of the research, it, it just makes oh, music question. incredible, isn't it? Yeah. I didn't know. I'm not a musical person. I didn't realize. I've always, I've always used it a bit. You know, it's always been part of what I do. But no, I had no idea how amazing it was. Um, and so I did some music training um, a couple of years ago now for Milton Keynes Council. And it was the worst training I've ever done. It was just awful. It was because I sang, which I know sounds, you know, sounds bright because I do believe that if you're a trainer, you shouldn't just be teaching. You should be leading by example. So I thought, right, I'm going to sing. Well, <laughs> unfortunately, I can't sing a note. And this group was not joining in anything. Oh, and it was 30 people. And... If I could go back in time and just say to myself, whatever you do, don't do the rap, then, okay. uh, then I would, because honestly, if you can... Do a footage of this training. Is it available? There is not a video, but if there was, it would have gone viral. Because if you can imagine three minutes, a middle-aged man rapping for three agonizingly silent minutes, and this, I, I, it, oh, the group would no. join in. So I was, that was getting them to join in on the last line, like a Beastie Boys style rap, because, you know, and every time I pointed at them, nothing. It's highly, it was just do it right now. I'm never going to no, do it again. That's fine. Um, no, but yeah, about, fine. Um, about a year ago, Boogie Mites, which is a company that makes music, yes. uh, yeah, they yeah. got in touch and went, oh, we've got this training, but we really want someone to do the neuroscience of, of music and we'll do the songs. I was like, oh, yes, please, because that cuts out all the air. And so that's what we do now. So we did uh, a session where I do all the neuroscience of music and singing and and they sang the songs. Um, you get the you get the nice side. You'd have to sing for everybody. No, but the brilliant thing about that is it's led to me writing a children's song. So I made a joke because I do make bad jokes in my training. And and I, I was about a dinosaur, about a jazz hands dinosaur. And I said um, to Sue from Boogmouth, I said, "Well, that'd be a good idea for a children's song." And she went, "Well, you write the lyrics. We'll write the music." And, Amazing. Um, bear in mind, they write songs for people like Michael Rosen as well. So this is. So I, next day, had loads of work to do, didn't do any of that, wrote a song about a dinosaur. And uh, yeah, three months later, I got this email saying, here's your song. And they put uh, instruments and multiple voices. Hey, that's and amazing. it's amazing. So the least musical person on the planet has written a has children's written a song. song. I know. And it's free to download as well. Because, there you go. Yeah, so yeah. Can have it. Yeah, <laughs> Jazz Hands Dinosaur. It's on Jazz my website. Absolutely free. We, um, one of the first things I ever say to anybody that joins the setting is, even if you can't sing... You will sing. So just do it on day one and get over that hurdle because, and I make a song out of everything and some people look at me like I'm crazy because tidying up is a song, meal times are a song. Like it just bring, I just naturally will bring music into everything. So it is, yeah, it's, it's a massive part one of, of it. I mean, looking into it, it's one of the best things you can do. I mean, especially baby rooms where that initial 
developing the, even the shape of the brain, all the communication language centers. Um, I was in a baby room recently doing some training and I was, there's, it was after the session, but there's a baby left over because it's a problem. Baby rooms quite often have, you know, the baby where the parents are late. The last one. So, yeah, the last the, baby. Person. And this worker came through rocking the baby, singing some body's poo, they're nappy now. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm thinking, well, there's only me and the baby in the room. So like, no, God, it's, it's not, not me. me. Yeah. <laughs> but isn't that a wonderful thing? Because that, that could have been a really stressful thing, couldn't it? So, I mean, I've been there with my own children. Oh, it's not my turn, it's your turn. And, oh God, it smells. And then if you've got a boy, they win your face and all yeah, of that stuff. it all goes lovely. And that becomes really stressful. And your babies are mirroring their emotions on yours. But instead of that, you've got this wonderful, I don't think she even knew how brilliant she was. She just quite happily, some is pooed, you know. And that is such a positive role model for that child's early brain. It's unbelievable. And it's all through music. So yeah, it's incredible stuff. It's Definitely. Music. It's a, it's kind of, Probably something, like you said, that's overlooked without when people do it in the setting, they don't realise what they're doing and why. And so in, with Inspired Children, what is it that sort of with you and your team, how do you sort of manage what you're doing um, with everything that's going well, we on? No, we don't, is the first answer. <laughs> Managing's a bit of a strong word. Um, I have a team of mavericks um, who have um, volunteered their time. I mean, they get paid, so that... but. They all work with children already and they are masochistic enough to go, do you know what? What Ben's been talking about, I like the sound of that. And they come up to me at training and they'll go, could I help out? And so they give up their extra free time um, oh, to work on these children's sessions. And we don't say no to sessions, so we don't know what to expect. Um, so it could be something simple, like an after-school club that said, oh, we're having a bit of a tough time. Everything's gotten a bit stale. Can you come and give us some new ideas? And that's the simplest one. Or it could be a class of school children who've lost their teacher, whose teacher's died, so they're struggling with grief. They want yeah. to come and do. And we don't have a therapeutic remit at all. Our remit is for children to be children again. That's the, the sole purpose. And we do it through play. And that is where you'll see the therapy happening. But we don't go out looking for therapy. Okay. And so we've got um, a lovely project at the moment where we work with newly adopted children to help them bond with their new families. So this is after the adoption process. Yeah. And we take them out in the woods, we just have a brilliant time. And it's, it's a lovely project. So we're not there to help them have any kind of, you know, therapy or emotional well-being stuff. We're there so that they get a chance to be a child again when actually that's the bit that's been, they've had deprived. Yeah. And that's the key. It's when you work with children who've had all of that taken away from them. Um, that's that's when it, 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 it's really heartwarming when you see a child just climbing a tree. Or just making a den or, you know, really simple That's stuff. That's so lovely, um, isn't it? Yeah, oh, it's fantastic. And Is it something that continues to make you want to keep doing what you do? When you have moments like that, when you see families bonding after an adoption process, which I can imagine can be quite a stressful process. What's really good about that one is, firstly, that because we don't do them, we do them kind of once a year or twice a year. So we, we there's quite a gap between us meeting the children and seeing them again. Yeah. So that's when you see the progress. You, you see, and perhaps the families don't realise just what they've done for the children. Nice. You see what a nurturing adoptive family does for a child. And some of the children are going to have behavioural problems. Of course they are, because of the trauma they've experienced. And when you see these patient, loving Adoptive families who just give everything for their children, and then you see that you see the benefit. You see six months later, you know, a year later, two years later, you see that child, and you just think, this this is humbling. You know, I work with children, but when I go home, you know, I can switch off. These guys have chosen deliberately to support a child who may well have behavioural difficulties and may well have a disability or whatever, 
And it's, yeah, it's really, really lovely. And, and meeting with the parents all the time is brilliant as well. So yeah, week in, week out, you'll see the progress. Um, Can people sort of contact you directly or is it done through sort of different organisations? How do you sort of... Yeah, it varies. We don't actually put on our own specific sessions. Okay. It's always alongside another agency. But, so it might be a local adoption agency who wants to work with adopted children. It might be a school or charities get in touch. So we work with uh, disability charities uh, or a school. Um, and it pretty much, we just turn up in the van and we unload load a play kit and we just tailor it to meet the needs of the children that we work with. So yeah. um, our, our goal is free, as much free play as possible. We want the children to be exploring the resources creating their own um, play. And the more we can step back and let that happen, the better. But we do understand that on some of our sessions, we have to be a lot more proactive in modelling those behaviours and supporting children. Um, but the, the last adoption, uh, post-adoption when we did it out in the woods, it, I think every single one of the children had already been to one before. So we just said, let's play. Okay. And they just scattered into the woods. The only slightly dodgy bit was when um, one of them has to do hide and seek. And, uh, and I said, we have a brilliant idea. And so a load of children hid. And then I realized I'd just lost 30 children in the woods. <laughs> so, but we, we got lots of adults present. We got lots of stuff and, and we did find them all. But the, and it was brilliant. But yeah, in, in hindsight, maybe that wasn't the best idea. <laughs> uh, but they had a brilliant time. Playing no, best so. idea is when they're up in the forest and I didn't see it's always, sort of, oh, they've all actually just gone now. So now I've got, got to find them all. <laughs> well, last time we played um, a running around game in the woods. And it's a, kind of like a game of tag, but it's a bit more inclusive. It's not the... Not the singling out children, old school tag. It's a bit more inclusive. It's called Last Ninja, but it's one of my favourite games. Sounds fun. Oh, it's awesome. It's the best running around game that, that you'll ever play. In fact, it's my go-to game, especially after school club John. We do play with early years as well. But I, I said, well, I'll be on first because I didn't want to put the children under pressure. Yeah. And I thought, I'm fast. I can catch all these children. Well, the last time I played it seriously was about 10, 15 years ago. And it nearly killed me. I'm not kidding. Because they've got a whole wood. It wasn't even a small area. And they're jumping over tree roots and branches as dips. And I'm about to go over. Just gone. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah, honestly, that absolutely nearly killed me. But that was just fantastic. Just loads of children. And, and what's interesting is that these are children who wouldn't do that if it was sport. And this is nothing against sport because I'm, I'm also a qualified sports coach. But they, they wouldn't because it feels too much about being... I don't know, put on under pressure. Yeah. Actually, a lot of the children have had enough of that pressure. They've had enough of feeling like failures, of humiliation. And so actually to get the, all of those children physically active at once, because it's a running around game where nobody cares who wins or loses, all about joy, that is a really powerful thing. Definitely. Uh, so, yeah. Do you think that there's anything further you want to do with your business or are you quite happy with the impact that you're making and the setup you've got do you have any like aspirations for it to go any sort of further? Apart from a knighthood. Um, uh, well, of course, yeah. yeah. <laughs> See, I, that's a weird one because you'd have to say yes just to make your whole family call you sir, wouldn't you? I mean, you just have to. Obviously, yeah. Yeah. I mean, in terms of the company, I, I, what I'd love to do is to get a, a, a more permanent team rather than it being a group of amazing people who join in whenever they can. And some of our staff will only do two or three sessions a year. Others are like hardcore and they'll do multiple sessions. I'd like a proper team that I can then just say, go off, go and make yeah. the children use these methods. And I think that's the aspiration is to grow the team because I'm at capacity with what I do. So I can't do any more. Yeah. I work six day weeks and doing the keynote speeches and the stuff like that and the training. And coming out to see us. <laughs> well, yeah. Yeah. Well, on my holiday as well. Um, but Never going to live that down. Uh, <laughs> uh, 
So I'd like the growth team. For my own personal growth, I'd, I'd really like to, to get that message about play out there even more. And I, I, I'm thinking about doing a PhD because I think that would be hilarious because, you know, the child with ADHD who is lazy and is never going to amount to anything, not only have written a book, but now everyone has to call me doctor. I mean, that'd be amazing. That would be good. Um, and if I did, um, if I did a, a doctorate on play, I'd be doctor play. Doctor play. Yeah, although that sounds a bit creepier than I thought. Yeah, now said out loud. That's a bit. Yeah, not maybe not that. But the thing is that that yeah. So for personal growth, I still think there's more that I can learn. Um, I'd love to do something like a TED talk or something like that because I think this stuff about play is, is so important. And I, and I think there's only a few of us talking about it in this way. And and I think that's the key. It's one of the massive reasons why early years is so undervalued. It's because people don't look at it and see learning and development. They see play and they mistake it for being frivolous. And it's not at all. It's the most important thing children ever do. And even in the early years sector, we still hedge our bets a little bit saying play is amazing. Play is great. Play is fantastic. But we actually need to be really categorical. Play is the most important thing children will ever do. It's got to be that strong. And I think that's that's why I'd like to read, reach a bigger audience. And I'm doing some international keynote speeches in America and stuff like that, which is brilliant. That That's where I'd like to take it, just to get that message out. And I and so the early years isn't undervalued and we all get paid what we should, uh, which is more than secondary school teachers. I, yeah. I mean, I completely agree. And I obviously listen to the work that you've done previously and read a lot, like I've read your book and and the way that you do talk about play is fascinating. And I've worked in a variety of different settings. I've done after school clubs, holiday clubs, um, standalone preschool, nursery trains. Um, and the evolution of what I've learned about play since starting has come on massively. And I know I've got so much more to learn in terms of the, I mean, I understand the importance of play and it's something I drum into all of my team, but it, like you said, there's so much more that we can get out there to everybody. And I remember when I first started, Christmas was like, yeah. everybody's name on a list. Have they done a card? Have they done a calendar? Have they done this? Have they done that? Have they got a decoration? And that was what it was. Like That was important. Yeah. Whereas now it's that shift of, we'll put the cards out. And we'll make it. We'll make a. We'll make the scene of Christmas, and we'll have play activities available and the resources. But I'm not sitting a child down and forcing them to to do that. That doesn't benefit them at all. That's a bit of a paradigm shift for for people, isn't it? Massive. You're absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the, if if the child's only experience of creativity is the, the adult has to finish it for them, mm-hmm. it's not creativity, is it? So no. no, it's something I'm really passionate about. Definitely, and it's something that it, it is a shift. It's a massive shift, and I remember the first year we said. Not if they don't want to make a Christmas card, they don't make a Christmas card. And there was uproar from the families. I didn't get a Christmas card this year. No, you didn't get a Christmas card because actually it's, you, your child really just wanted to carry on playing in yeah. the sand and I wasn't going to pull them away we, from we that. We do a little, quite a bit of transient art for things like that, which is just like random resources and then the children make whatever picture, whatever, they want. whatever yeah. they want and then we photograph it, send it home to the parents and that way the parents get something that's unique and exactly. yeah. it's their child's done it. And yeah, you're right, we do still get you know, the odd complaint. But I think at least with that freedom, a child ex- expressing themselves. Exactly. And that's what it's that's what it's about. It's not about what we do or how it makes everybody else feel. If the child has actually yeah. worked on something, that's what we should be celebrating. Not that I've painted your hand and yeah. put it down. Yeah. <laughs> They've um, not got anything from that at all. I know. And it's it it, it is that we've started them so young into thinking that creativity is something that's done to them. 
rather than something yeah. to do. That actually, where are the next generation of you know divergent thinkers and problem solvers and innovative, creative problem solvers going to come from? If not from the children we have right now in early years, and we've got to let them experiment and explore because if we don't, then you know that that's something precious they could lose. So uh, no, yeah, I, I, I do love that. I mean, and, but I've been there. I mean, years ago, it was yeah, planning was what haven't we had out for a while? That was planning, you know. Whereas we've moved on a long a long way since then, and um, yeah. Are you? sometimes surprised with the lack of knowledge around play still i i don't think it's i think we're, we're, we've definitely come along quite a long way in the last 20 years and i think the knowledge is that play is important is is now there i think everybody understands it but i still think that it becomes secondary to other agenda um when i i believe that all the other agenda can actually be achieved through play um so i'm not surprised by it because it does look silly, you know, it, it, you can't get away from the fact that people don't think I've got a proper, proper job. If I'm running around a forest at night, you know, trying to catch children who are much faster than me and getting paid for it, people are not going to look at that and go, you know, that's just take his job seriously. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, and, and nobody's going to look at that and equate it to being, I don't know, a, an industry, you know, corporate business tycoon or whatever, even though I believe it's more important so I'm not surprised that people don't value play. Um, and I, I do think understanding the neuroscience of it helps a lot with that. Yeah. Um, because that, you can, I think people listen more when you talk about neuroscience than when you talk about even mental health. Um, I think one thing in this country that we, I, I really still don't think we value mental health as much as we should. I think you still think it's brushed under the carpet. I think there are still many practices that we use with children that actually are detrimental to children's mental health. Um, I mean, you know, just, just being a parent, I encounter this all the time with my own children. Um, you know, just, just, just practice that doesn't seem to put the child first. Yeah. So it's, it's only when you start to look at what's happening to a child's brain, I think people switch on more. Um, definitely. So that's why the neuroscience is so important. And I don't think you need to be a neuroscientist to be good at your job. And I don't think you need to understand what all the different bits of the brain are. I mean, I think they, they're still saying that we know more about the surface of Mars than we do about the human brain still. Yeah, that doesn't so surprise me. always new stuff. But, but in early years, I mean, we've got some brilliant, brilliant theorists, you know, actually nailing, this is what's happening in your child's brain. And when you can show a picture of a brain to somebody, then they switch on. Yeah, because it looks important. Health, you know, they, they switch off because it doesn't seem important. There's still the mentality, and I, I know it's an awful thing to say, but I still think some adults think children need to toughen up. Yeah. And... And that is the absolute opposite. And in fact, in the, the new book, which, sorry, we're probably going to come up That's to okay. <laughs> But one of the things I was clear in one of the chapters is that, that if you unpick those kind of mentalities, they make no sense. Because if you're giving children unpleasant experiences, we now know it doesn't make you better able to cope with unpleasant experiences. It's the opposite. And it's not a small amount of research. The research is really clear that the way to help to protect children against negative life experiences is to give them positive experiences. Because that's what builds their resilience and their confidence so that then they can actually cope. Whereas if you give them more negative experience, it just reinforces the cycle. Um, and it's, uh, there's some really interesting sort of research, but w one of the, the bits of neuroscience is that, um, I've been, sorry, I'm, I'm kind of... No, it's, it's, it's fascinating. I, I, yeah, I think, and when you say it out loud, it makes sense, doesn't it? It gives yeah. you positive experiences and they'll flow it. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a no-brainer, but you've got people who tease children because they, because they think that that's how the world is and that, well, they're going to get teased in school, so they need to toughen up. And, and that is a completely broken way of thinking because the, the, that's the opposite. Yeah. If you, if you accept that you're not going to get teased in, in another place, 
then the last thing you want to do is do more teasing in the, the place that you're at. Now you need to give them the positive stuff. And one of the chapters in the book, I think is going to be quite controversial because it's, it's actually saying that banter is wrong. And I know that I, I work with amazing workers who do use it, but I think if you are not a hundred percent sure that it's not impacting our children, the trouble is you won't be. No, you, then, you don't know, do yeah. you? Because it's too, you don't know what's going to happen. Well, your children are brilliant at mudsling. I was, I'm, I'm, I was really short as a child. I mean, I know six foot four now, but um, I was, I was teased every day because of my height and, and I'm, you know, I never let it show. Not no. once did I ever let that smile slip off my face because that was just inviting more teasing. But in hindsight, it was wearing, it's exhausting. And that's the problem. It's that masking is emotionally draining. And so if you're doing that every single day, and I, and I did for my entire school life, it is going to impact on your mental health and it is going to, to wear you out emotionally. So that's what, what I'm trying to say to people. I mean, we've, you've got a choice and it's, it's kind of taking a dark turn now, but no, you've got a choice to be any role model you can. For children, you literally could be anything. Yeah. Why would you choose to be the mean one? Why would yeah. you choose to be the shouty one or the the person who undermines a child's confidence just because it's funny? You you can be better than that. No, I think you're right. It's, you make a choice every day that you're with these children to be you. So who are you going to be to those children? Yeah. Are you going to be the person that they confide in that they are comfortable to talk with, or are you going to be the one that well oh, they don't really spend want to spend much time with me because I'm going to say something that actually upsets them, but they're not going to tell me. It's, it's yeah, who do you choose to, to be for these children? And looking at the neuroscience, we know children have got mirror neurons. These are brain cells specifically there to absorb and copy the, the role modelling that the adult gives to them. And it's much more adults than children, especially in early years. They are the most skilled social scientists of children. They're actually looking at your behaviour, attitude, how you cope in a crisis. All of that is being absorbed and it's shaping their brain. It's actually changing the shape of their brain. So, yeah, you've got a choice to be anything. And yeah. yeah. I mean, my technical term for that is children are sponges. Yeah. <laughs> and that's my phrase. They are taking in no, everything no. that you're saying to them, the way that adults communicate with each other. Yeah, yeah. They're watching. Yeah. They're watching everything you're doing. And I always say to people, just be mindful of how you've just spoken to somebody. Yeah, because that's what they're modeling. That's, yeah. that's what they're going to think is acceptable. And it's when parents, but you have to sometimes have to have uncomfortable conversations with parents because. Yeah. The child is swearing and so we've heard it somewhere. So. Well, yeah. Can I take the sponge analogy one step further though? Go on. Because sponges are passive and they absorb everything that goes into a sponge. Children are not passive. They actually send out signals to the outside world to gain that information. So they're sponges, but with tentacles. That's how Amazing. I Because they, they, like the baby goes, boo. I'm going to take that. That's Please fine. Please do. Yeah, no. Sponges <laughs> with tentacles. Sponges be careful tentacles. to say tentacles because we're being recorded. But, <laughs> but a baby goes, boo, because they want you to go boo back. Yeah. They're sending out signals. But the four-year-old will go boo into a bucket because they want to hear the echo. So they're constantly, you know, like a two-year-old will walk past a wall and they'll stroke the wall. So they're not just passively accessing information. They're, they're sending out constantly. Yeah, to gain it. it. You know, the baby will throw the rattle off the, the high chair for you to pick it up again. Um, there was the, does anybody know how many times the baby will throw the rattle off the high chair oh. before they get bored of it? And the truth is, no one knows because no adult has ever had the patience to find out. I was going to say, I don't, they I just don't keep think doing it, keep doing it. But yeah, I mean, the, you know, the simple games of peekaboo, all of that, the baby is not just absorbing stuff. They are constantly seeking for information and stimulus. So yeah. So there you go. Sponges with tentacles. Sponges with tentacles. The technical term. <laughs> um. So we sort of briefly touched on your books and writing a book. Your first book, A Very Unusual Journey Into Play. And if you haven't read this book, 
I would highly, highly recommend because it's fascinating. It, I remember when we we first came across the book and Ben has sort of annotated our copy and he's written up because he just and we just absorbed it and it was and he's just that's really, other ben, not, the other not, Ben, not, sorry, I, no, not this Ben. I don't sneak into people's houses and annotate them. Just, just let's get that one out. No, the other Ben, the, the mastermind behind all the tech, but he it was it we just got so absorbed in it and it's just such an interesting read and I think something that when you when you read the book, you're just going, oh yeah, yeah, that's <laughs> what I wanted. So I'm really pleased to hear you say that because Definitely. once it's out there, you you don't know. I mean, no. it's had some incredible reviews. I've had emails from people saying how much they love it, but you you still don't know. It's it's a really weird thing when you do a training course and you deliver it. If it's going well, you can see it in people's faces. And unless it's Zoom, of course, they've got all their cameras off. That's the worst nightmare. They're not actually there. Yeah, I know. They've got off made a cup of tea or something. Um, but yeah, with the book, I've never done anything like it before. So just to, so to basically putting yourself out into the world yeah, like that. And you memorable. can't take it back. No. You can't go, oh, you know that bit where there was that slightly off, you know, that joke that wasn't very good. I, I, I'm going to change that. You can't. No, once it's out there, it's it's there. So what? inspired the book what was kind of the step of i'm doing all these amazing things with inspired children i'm doing the the, the training courses how did you get to well uh, yeah again book. another non-standard route um so I, I i've kept i've always liked writing but I, I was never anything so i like i didn't do english at a level or whatever but after i'd been kicked out of university once i was working with children i actually put myself through a degree and I decided to do an English degree, first degree I did. Uh, I've since done, done a master's and lots of qualifications in, you know, in early years and, and playwork, et cetera. But I did English because it fascinated me. But I'd been told, I don't know what it was. My dad was a, an engineer and it, in the 80s, it, it was like the sciences were the important bit, weren't they? And, and so I was steered away from then. And actually, that's probably one of the reasons why I failed so badly is because I just wasn't interested. So I did an English degree, so I, I absorbed a lot of literature and poetry and stuff. And so I've, I've always written in the background, just kind of like, you know, I've written my own, I've written, wrote my own sci-fi book, um, never been published, just wrote it for my own pleasure. Um, never, ever thought about work, combining my work with my writing, because the writing was, you know, the odd poem, odd, you know. Um, and then I did a speech at Nursery World, um, and it was about a play, and the next day a publisher phoned me up, and went, have you ever thought of writing a book? And I went, well, that sounds a good idea. And I remember putting the phone down, having agreed to write a book, having agreed that there's a deadline and I've got to write a 60,000 word book before this deadline. And then I suddenly I said to my wife, um, I think I've got to write a book. And so, um, yeah, so I did. And it was, I, I, it was luckily, it was, I said luckily, not luckily, but it was in the middle of um, the pandemic. Oh, so yeah. I'd got more time. Because although I was working flat out during the pandemic, I was really fortunate because people still wanted the training. Yeah. Um, but it meant there was no travel time. So I got that of loads course, of extra time. Yeah. So I made sure that Friday was my writing day and, and I, I just went through it chapter by chapter. I submitted a proposal to the publishers of what, what the structure would be about. And I wanted it to be about, well, this kind of this journey into playing about how every step through every aspect of play from imaginative play to physical play to boisterous play and how it changes children's lives and i wanted it to be a definitive kind of no it's not just nice it's essential and um yeah i, I wrote it uh, the publisher kept asking to see bits but i was too i wasn't confident enough to even show them it 
until I'd finished. No, it's not ready yet. Yeah. <laughs> and they kept saying, I bet they were getting quite nervous, to be honest, because they kept saying, could you just send us a chapter? Oh, yeah, maybe when I've written this next chapter, I didn't. I didn't send them a single word of it. I'm probably thinking, and, um, writing this I know, book. I know. <laughs> and I was, yeah, but um, about a month before the deadline, I finished it. And wow. I sent it off and they loved it. And which was a, honestly such a relief <laughs> because it is just me. So obviously writing like a fiction work, you're, you're writing in a very different way. Yeah. Whereas the book is just personal. It's it's how I talk. And um, yeah, and it was published and people loved it. So um, yeah, it's been a, a, a absolutely amazing. I mean, it's just the best thing I've ever done. Yeah. Um, I had an email from somebody who'd been uh, in Edinburgh in Waterstones, had picked up a copy of the book because they liked the purple cover. Amazing. I mean, they were in the department, the education department, so it wasn't right. like they were you just, know, just random. random. They, they, yeah, it was something they had an interest in. But then email me saying it was a life-changing yeah. thing for them, and that was so lovely to hear. No, it is, and I think it, it is definitely, like we said, we're trying to continue with that shift of it's yeah. not just good, it's essential for children to play, and it's definitely a book that I recommend to my team and We've got our copy and it, it's, yeah, it's definitely a really good and I don't want to say an easy way to put it, but it's, an, it's easy to understand when yeah. you read the yeah. book. It's it's there and you don't feel like you're going through pages and pages of words you don't understand. No, and that's it, that was the, the point of it. Yeah. The point is it's a book written for people who work with children who have, or who have children. It's not a textbook. No. I was quite resistant to the... That's the word, the, textbook, yeah. yeah. Not the um, resistant word, textbook, yeah. There are amazing textbooks out there and there are amazing books out there, for, especially for early years, but it is exactly what you need to do at, at level three or a, yeah. in an earlier degree. But I didn't want it to be that. I wanted it to be... Um, well, I wanted it to be an unusual journey into play. So it's got evil magicians, it's got... You know, it's got all sorts of weird things in it as well as the, the neuroscience and the biochemistry of play. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm really proud of it. And, and uh, yeah, probably the best thing I've achieved in my career, I think, just because of how people seem to really like it. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. No, it's fantastic. And um, yeah, I just, and I'm really looking forward to your next book because you're currently in the process of creating a new, a new book. Yeah, well, it's finished. Oh, it's, so finished. it's finished. It's the new book. Yeah. So it turns out it's a lot harder to write books when it's not a pandemic. Um, that's the first thing I'll get out really there. really busy. Yeah, um, but I still put aside Fridays to work. So this one I went right up to the deadline. Um, in fact, Amazing. the deadline was the Friday, but I submitted it on the Monday. So I was I, I just needed the weekend to yeah. work it. Um, but the new book is is even, I can say even weirder, but it was inspired by a, a really very, very simple thing that happened to me, um, which some people will have heard me talk about on training courses because of one of those moments. Um, but I mentioned... Earlier, I work on adoption activity days, and the idea is for adopters not to get put off by what's on a profile, not to see the scary medical term, but actually play with a child. Yeah. And I mean, even just a few weeks ago, we'd got a, a, a set of adopters who said, oh yeah, well, you know, we, we've got a heart set on you know, one child. We, we couldn't possibly have two children. We don't feel that we'd be comfortable. And then they met a sibling group of two and sat in a den together making magic potions together and something connected. And, you know, we don't know this too early to tell, but that could well be a forever family for a sibling group and sibling groups. God, what a special moment to be oh, a nice. Yeah. So there's this little boy and he's only only very young, about four years old, but he was sat on an adopter's lap making a magic potion. And it was just such a lovely moment. We'd already begun to step back because that's how our job is done. But what the little boy doesn't know is that the potions, we've got a little light box. It's, it's not a light box. It's a torch in a box. It's, it's a homemade really cheap light box but when you put the potions on the the box they glow little boy doesn't know this is going to happen so he puts the potion on the box he's sat in the adopter's lap 
and he starts shaking because he's seeing this potion glow. And in the end, he just shook so much that he squeezed the potion really hard. And the adopter was just leaning over to see what was happening. And it honestly hit him straight in the face. And it was <laughs> the potions, basically, it's green food coloring and glitter. That's what, what he'd made yep. out of all down this guy's shirt. Nice. He's going, oh, it does wash out, doesn't it? And we're going, yeah, of course it does. It does. Uh, it does maybe. It. Um, yeah. Well, a small amount, not that amount. So that's, I've been toying with this idea that joy was really important for children. But I never thought I could write a book because I thought people would instantly dismiss it. Like Ben's having a midlife crisis. Yeah. You know, just like telling everyone <laughs> to go hug a tree. He's turning into an old hippie. And seeing that, it's such a visceral re reaction on a child's yeah. face. Such a physical thing. That, that moment of joy that, let's be honest, that's transcended anything that he's experienced in his life. That's a child who's been through hell. Yeah. There he is on an doctor's lap, feeling probably the safest he's ever felt in his life, making a magic potion and getting so excited. And so I've written a book about joy. And um, yeah, finished it. Um, three months ago, just had the latest copy editing uh, manuscript through. Yeah, just done all that. So I, as as long as there's no more things from the copy editor, that's it. Now I've finished, and it's going to be released at Christmas. Well, um, there you go, stocking fillers for everyone. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, it, it is. I mean, fascinating. The book on play, it's stuff I knew, but I've researched it further. Yeah, the stuff on joy, there are bits that blew my mind, and actually, we're talking yeah. about music stuff the whole chapter. Yeah, talking about music and singing because in terms of the like joy underpinning things like communication language, where you can't, you, there's not, it's it's perfect, isn't it? Like a song shared with a with a parent, with a, a key worker, that is embedding communication language more than anything else. And in fact, with, with all the things like the word gap and communication communication language deficits and all of that, when you analyze for many of the children what's missing from their lives. It's the songs, it's the, song, yeah. it's the nursery rhymes, it's the bedtime stories, it's the joyful use of language. So I've actually made an argument in the book that joy underpins every aspect of learning from mathematics yeah. to physical development to, because without it, the children fundamentally don't want to do it. It's, it's kind of linking back to what you said right at the start about those jobs. You found yeah. something now that you really enjoyed. Yes. So you want to continue it. You want, and it's the same with children. If they're not happy or they're not enjoying a situation they'll just walk away well, this like, is the weird thing because it's not rocket science is it and no you, you talk to anyone and you say if you enjoy something do you want to do it more or less yeah and then so why are we making so much of education for some children not enjoyable yeah it, it's it just makes no sense, no sense at all well, no. you know and i thought i was the only person talking about it but in the research it turns out there's actually a lot of evidence and there's researchers, there's neuroscience studies, there's um, neurobiology studies that actually show joyful approaches to pretty much, well, pretty much everything yep. are not just one approach, they're the best. And approaches to education. Um, and there's, there's all sorts of weird things like filters in your brain that if something is novel, original and enticing, so awe and wonder, it filters more information to your cognitive brain and your memory centers. So every time something is fun, you'll automatically learn it more because more of the information about what you're learning is filtered. We've known this for years. Yeah. And yet... The education yeah. system hasn't... Well, yeah. ...adapted to... This is the this is the, one of the, the things, is that I... There's so much teacher bashing out there and, and there are the most amazing teachers. Oh, they, uh, yeah. Who do put joy into their lessons, who make the child the centre of the process. They can't and, change what yeah. they have have to get out of children that's not in their hands is yeah and and there's i know i've worked with some of these guys i don't know if you've ever heard of simon hunt uh yes he's, he's a good one for a podcast absolute <laughs> legend this guy but he just the passion with which he engages with his his children is is like 
and I meet people like that all the time. So, but, but at the same time, I hear other things where children are just not engaged no. um, or where old practices, like practices that w- were really discredited for like 1950s, you know, behaviorist studies have been discredited. They're still being done as, as a matter of course. Um, you know, my, my son uh, is 15 years old. Uh, we've had three family deaths. So we've had quite a bit of time of bereavement. Um, he's had to go to two funerals in the space of four months or so. But he's also struggling with his physical health, so he's, he's had multiple hospital appointments. So oh, bless had a bit of a tough time. He's a great, absolutely great lad, but he's had a tough time. So uh, two weeks ago, he was not allowed to go on the end of year trip for his school because his absence is attendance. Too, and I, I don't understand that. There is not a single shred of evidence that says that making children feel rubbish about their absences is going to make them attend school more. No. All of the evidence which suggests that that is a completely flawed approach. Again, you can be any role model you want to be. You can be the supportive person who helps a child who's had too many absences. Or you can be the person who makes them feel rubbish and it pretty much ensures they don't... Don't come back and want to do it. I've lost the the trip. What's the point? You know? Um, So you're penalising mental health, you're penalising physical health and you're penalising bereavement. Yeah. That's quite standard, you know? And and that's something that I'm, I'm keen to argue against, but without... Without it seeming like I'm being critical, because I know I mean, it's incredibly difficult, you know, working with children. I know this, um, but um, there's a wonderful neuroscientist called um, Dr. Judy Willis, um, very well worth looking in uh, looking into. And she she looks at joyful approaches to education. And one thing she says that's really stuck with me is that there is not one single neuroscience or neurobiology study that shows that a joyful approach to education can in any way harm a child. Whereas there are studies that show that some of the current practices actually can. So you've got nothing to lose, really. Um, so it is, it is frustrating. But you yeah. know, talking about sort of absences and things, I don't know why I remember this, but my younger sister, so she is my half-sister, lives with my, my dad and my stepmom, and our school must have finished before theirs or whatever. Yeah. And I remember being at the house and she was really bawly and my... She loves education, but she loves, she's at uni now, like she yeah, just yeah. loves learning. And she was really sick. And my dad told her, you can't go to school. And she was mortified because all <laughs> yeah. she wanted was that certificate. Yeah, She'd never missed a day of school from like foundation, reception age. She hadn't missed one. And I think it was probably year four, five, I can't remember. And it was, it was what, and she was really poorly. Like yeah. they were like, you, you, you can't like you no. and she was mortified and that will stick with me and you're so right like why why is that certificate so important she's missed one day because she genuinely was really sick yeah I know and that's and, it it's gone chance is over yeah she was broken. Oh, and, and, and then, that yeah. stuck with me and I just thought just send her in so she gets marked in and then pick her up yes, an hour. Say, yeah. well, I'll send her in and let her infect the Everybody, whole school yeah. yeah no one gets the certificate <laughs> But, but and I think that's so true. There's no harm in creating joy for for children no. and adults. There's no and when no, no. you're teaching and play and learning with children and it's fun. Yeah, it's not just fun for the child. It's fun for you, and it's yeah. Oh well, yeah. I mean, that's the thing with working with children is that you're you can see the impact you're having on the children, but actually you you can it, it makes a difference to you, you as well. Good, I think yeah. one of the issues with adult mental health is that we, we don't play, do we? No. I think if we all played more and found those moments of joy for ourselves, yeah. then I think, you know, I think the world would be a better place. No, um, definitely. Yeah. So hopefully the book on joy uh, is not too hard a sell 
people, um, but it has. It's certainly fascinated me, and uh, it's got a whole whole chapter on humour. Um, and in fact, I'm doing um, I'm doing a talk on humour and laughter coming up soon. Um, one of the Kindly webinars, okay, which is going to be directly from the book because I had no idea how important laughter was for for children and adults. I mean, it's obvious, I know. Yeah. <laughs> But it's you know it's it's a it, it improves your heart health if you laugh more. It's, it's linked to life expectancy. People who laugh lots live longer. It's, you know, it changes the biochemistry of your brain. And even one thing I learned was that you're fifteen uh, percent better able to cope with pain if you've laughed. So all the children oh, wow. struggle with resilience. You know, because with children are, are very overprotected now. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they might like, over they might get overly upset over a minor injury. When actually, if we'd made them laugh first, that injury would hurt 15%. So the road to resilience is everybody laughing. And it's adults and children too. Yeah. So, yeah. And there's there's the sound of a baby laughing. Oh, God, yeah. It's one of the best sounds. And it's something that makes you smile. And I think it's like you say, just do more to make children children giggle. I I found fascinating when when researching this was was the, the experiment they did about pain was they actually caused people pain. So they've got a laboratory and they've got loads of people and they've got a button they can press, which is the, oh God, please stop hurting me button. Yeah. And then they kept giving them pain and the group that had laughed the most could hold off pressing the button and they used electric shocks. I think they used, um, they used cool, um, um, wine coolness to give cold pain. Ooh. I know. I mean, that, that's a slow day in the laboratory, isn't it? That's, <laughs> yeah. a, that's a bunch of people. <laughs> yeah. Let's cause people pain. And, but uh, make them laugh first. <laughs> yeah. We'll pretend it's science. Let's just cause loads, loads of people of pain. pain. <laughs> and they're all laughing to each other. So, um, yeah, it's, it's causing them joy, though. Well, yeah, they're and, yeah, and they're better able to go with pain themselves now. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, humour and laughter massively important. I've recommended that all teachers, all educators have mandatory stand-up comedy training. Um, I think that's, yeah. that would make That'd learning so much better. We'll fit that training in somewhere. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. Mandatory, mandatory. safeguarding, equal opportunities and stand-up, stand-up comedy, comedy as statutory <laughs> training. So... To kind of wrap up on sort of everything we've talked about, gone on a few little different sort of journeys of things, what would be your three top tips for practitioners, parents, educators, when it comes to play and early years? Um, so I think number one is the one we've talked about all the way through is you've got a choice. You, you can be anything, but your children are modelling on what you are. So pick the best of yourself. Be that person that they can model on. It's not always easy. You know, if you're a parent, you're going to get it wrong. You're going to be mean to your children once in a while because, you know, like many people who work with children, I'm much better at working with other people's children than I am with my own. But you have to understand it's a balance. And actually, if you work with vulnerable children like I do, one of the key things is to make sure that their positive experiences outweigh their negative because that way they've got a chance of thriving. So when you get it wrong, that's, that's okay because you're going to get it right and you're going to try harder to be more joyful, to be more you know, not so mean and all of that. Working with children, the best thing you can be is just be be you, but but the, the best model, version. Yeah, yeah. The one you want them to have of you. Yeah. So I suppose that would be it. And and that leads directly into joy. If you're modeling joy, the child will experience They'll joy. They'll feel it. Yeah. And it's everything. You know, if you're if you're like me, well, I, I I'm getting old now. Um what's that? You look so young. Thank you. <laughs> uh, no, I'm I'm getting older now. And and I, when my son was about four, we noticed that he'd make noises when he bends over to pick stuff up. It d- deliberately because it's copying me because when I pick something up I go yeah so that is modelling not not a joy in physical movement but an actual pain in physical movement so I mean luckily you know, he's fine he does a lot of physical activity now but the thing is it's yeah we need to model joy and and in fact I think 
sometimes we think that only people who are good at stuff should be doing that stuff. So, so yeah, physical activity is a, is a really classic one for that because when you look at sports coaches, and again, love sports coaches. I've got them on my team. I say I'm a qualified sports coach. I'm actually running a badminton project for adopted children <laughs> at the moment. But they they tend to be young, fit, good looking, handsome, tracksuits, yeah, that sort of thing. And we think that they're the people who do the sport, and the rest of us don't because we're short like me, or we're overweight or underweight or whatever don't it fit is. The criteria yeah. of it, yeah. And actually, there's more of us than there are of them. Yeah, sport should be for us. Not not just for the, for the, the young, yeah. bit handsome ones. Does that make sense? Yeah. So no, it does. So one of the things is if you're, you know, if you are the person who can't kick a football at all, you should be coaching football because then you're inspiring all of those children who think they can't yeah, do it. And yeah, yeah, if you're the person who's not good at balancing on beams, you should be on that beam and then falling off, wiping the mud from your eyes and getting on with it because all the children are going, "Wow, if she can do it, I can do it." Yeah. No, so, definitely. Yeah. So just give it a go, and it's like storytelling as well. It's like. If you tell stories to children, people go, oh, well, that Deirdre does that. She's really good. Yeah. And they leave it to Yeah, she can do group time. Yeah. Yeah. She can do the storytelling. And and I'll hoover up while that's going on. Yeah. No, because the children need to see the person who does stumble over the words, who does get the voices and mixes up the goblin and the witch every so often, you know, because then they're seeing it as a real thing, as a real person, not just this kind of far off thing to aspire to. Yeah. So, yeah. The pedestal of not being able to reach it. Yeah. If it's someone they can relate to it. Well, I read... um, I read The Hobbit to my son when he was young because he's um, my son's um, struggled with reading and he's got a diagnosis of Erlen syndrome. Um, and so he was being sent home reading screen books for way, way below his actual age. But his comprehension and his vocabulary was a 16-year-old. So yeah. Seven. So he's not interested in the reading screen books. No. So he's learning fundamentally that stories are boring. So as a, I, a mammoth undertaking, I decided to read The Hobbit to him. And uh, I'm terrible because... I can't do voices. Oh, I can, but they keep going Welsh and they keep swapping. <laughs> and so there's 13 dwarves in The Hobbit. So I've had to do a different voice for each dwarf. And yeah, I get it wrong every time. It, and honestly, it was just the, probably the worst rendition of The Hobbit that's ever happened in the history of The Hobbit. Only it didn't matter because I read it with joy because I loved the book as a child. It, I yeah. still love fantasy and sci-fi to this day. One of my favourite childhood books. So it didn't matter. No, it was just amazing. It transformed how he views stories. He still reads fantasy and sci-fi now. He's 15 years old. He still loves stories and it changed him. And it was just somebody reading it with joy, not with skill. I think that's the key. When I finished it, he looked at me and he just, his eyes were just shining with the light of adventure. And he just went, Daddy, did Tolkien write any more books that you could read to me? And I looked at his little face and I went, no, sorry, he didn't write any more books. I'm sorry. No, they're done. (laughs) No, I had to read Lord of the Rings to him. It took me two, oh. two years of my life. It was, it was so hard. But it was really Almost joyous. Every, well, he'll never forget it, no. you know, and hopefully one day he'll do that for his children. So, yeah. you know, you don't have to be good at stuff. You just just need to give it joy. Give it a go. Yeah. yeah. Smile while you do it. Yeah. No, well, I do have one last question that I'll ask everybody. Okay. Talking on childhood memories, and hopefully that one is one that your son will take with him. Do you have a childhood memory like your that's like a favourite for you that you can remember? Um, yes, I, I don't know if it's it's kind of a bittersweet one in a way. Um, but on my seventh birthday, um, I went to Alton Towers um, and uh, with my family. And uh, at the, t- the this is not the memory, but I will just okay. say that on on this day, um, I was attacked by a sea lion. So that was that was a, a weird oh memory. Um, when I was a child, I used to be, animals used to attack me on sight. 
And you know how, like, if you see films where it's the Antichrist or whatever, it was like that. Dogs would bite me and people going, he's never ever done that before. Cows oh, would bite me. I always had... Um, Just kick off a vibe. Well, there was a... It, with their, in school, they did this thing where they tested your resistance of your skin with electricity. I uh, mine, my skin conducted electricity way more than anybody else in the class. For some I... reason, it was like the scale. They had to change the meter to get a different scale. That so, animals just... So I don't know if it's, that was it, but whatever reason, they don't anymore. I'm okay. But yeah, there's sea lion on tails because they used to have animals there. They don't anymore. It, it kind of swam underwater, leapt out and just smacked me in its face and just headbutted me down the stairs. <laughs> so... Um, but that's not the memory. Not watching the show. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so yeah. The memory is that on that day, my dad took me, and, and we wanted to go boating, and they're these boats, and it was my seventh birthday, and we got boat number seven wow. by accident, and my dad took me out boating in boat number seven, and my dad died many, many years ago. But that's one memory. Yeah, I felt special, felt yeah. like the universe or whatever, because I'd got boat number seven on my seventh birthday, oh. and we were me and my dad having the best time ever. And it's kind of one of my treasured memories of my dad just rowing, rowing a sail on this, this boating lake. And all the stars aligned. Yeah, it's a silly thing now in hindsight, but at the time it felt just felt really special that yeah, I wanted boat number seven and I got boat number seven. Oh no, so, that's yeah. lovely. And, it's, and like you say, it's something that it's not silly because at the time it was so it was such a massive moment of the day. Like you yeah. got that boat that you wanted, and it's a nice memory of. Of being out together and yeah, treasure yeah. memory, and no, you can edit lovely. all the bit out about the sea lion hitting me because no, just definitely weird. not. <laughs> I'm going to try and get a copy of the rap in as well too. Uh, not a chance, never again on the rap. It was about early years as well. I thought it was dead clever, but no, I'm not ever doing that. I'm so intrigued. <laughs> going to scan the internet, talk to little kids council. <laughs> yeah, one day, one day. Um, thank you so much for joining me on this episode of the podcast. I really, really appreciate your time and coming over to see us. Uh, pleasure, absolute pleasure. Thank you. And I hope that everyone has kind of really taken the message of how important play and engaging with children and being that positive role model really, really is to development. And I think everybody listening will take away from this and reflect on their own practice. And hopefully moving forward, we can start to look at our spot in education and really make start making a difference in what we what we are all doing it's every single changing. day I mean that's yeah. it so if you work with the children I work with that's one amazing thing you do see it change lives one positive adult sometimes that's all it takes and it fundamentally changes life forever so yeah we all need to be the best we can be definitely no. and I will leave you on on that note and um, thank you so much for listening and uh, we will see you in the next one brilliant bye. thank you thanks babe thanks a lot